Alrighty then, it's time, it's time. I hope you've had much better things to do all week than to anxiously await another exciting installment of Live from Roswell. But in case this is indeed the highlight of your week, as it is mine, the wait is over. It is January 20th, 2008, and tonight we are discussing Majestic 12 and the New World Order with guests Paul and Philip Collins. More about just who they are and the book they've co-authored in just a few. I am your host, Guy Malone, broadcasting to you globally from sunny and today very cool Roswell, New Mexico. Thanking you once again for tuning in to the Paranormal Radio Network, broadcasting Internet Talk Radio around the clock 24-7. And little old me on Sunday nights, 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern, 9 to 11 Pacific, and all across your lunch hour Monday morning and afternoon in Tokyo and Sydney. Good day to our listeners on the other side of the globe, by the way. If you can't make our showtimes regularly, remember the program is archived for any time listening, usually very shortly after it's over. And you can hear many, many weeks of back archives by poking around on our website, www.livefromroswell.com. And while you're on the web checking that out, you can also check out alienresistance.org, our program sponsor, offering biblical perspectives on UFOs and abductions, as well as DVDs galore from past UFO conferences that have held here in sunny Roswell, New Mexico. Still, as a Live from Roswell listener exclusive, the 11-disc collection of DVDs that contains over 30 audio and video lectures from the July 2007 conference are marked down to just $49, and that's $30 off the original price of $79 that is still posted on roswellufoconference.com. If you go there, you'll pay $79 for the set still, but go to livefromroswell.com and you'll see a PayPal button that allows you to purchase the complete collection at $30 less for the exact same product. All 11 discs for just $49 instead of $79. That's a New Year's special brought to you by the program sponsor, alienresistance.org. And hey, out there, in case you've just not heard what's going on in the world, a massive UFO sighting in Stephenville, Texas, made truly national headlines this past week. Now, I've posted several of the big articles for you on LiveFromRoswell.com. I'll start off the program tonight just telling you a little bit about what's going on with that. Here's just the facts for you. Uh, reported by Freep.com, a.k.a. the Detroit Free Press, it reads, Dozens in Texas town report seeing UFO, read an online headline for the Washington Post, multiple reports of UFO-like sighting in Texas town, proclaimed Canada's CBC News. It, the article continues by saying that the reported sightings have become a catalyst on blogs and in chat rooms, triggering scientific and philosophical debates, religious inquiries, conspiracy, conspiracy charges, and bad Texas jokes. So if anyone has a bad Texas joke, by the way, please do send it in to me. I want to know it. But the article goes on saying that according to the Associated Press, several dozen people, including a pilot, county constable, and business owners, insisted they've seen a large silent object with bright lights flying low and fast. Some reported seeing fighter jets chasing it. Sightings were reported earlier this week. And another quote, while federal officials insist there's a logical explanation, locals swear what they see they saw was larger, quieter, faster, and lower to the ground than an airplane. They also said the object's lights changed configuration, unlike those of a plane. And apparently it's not something limited to Stephenville. 
People in several Texas towns who reported seeing it over several weeks have offered similar descriptions of the object. All that's an excerpt from the Detroit Free Press article I've linked for you on livefromroswell.com. A USA Today blog article that I posted quotes the Stephenville Empire Tribune by saying, at least 40 people have reported sightings of the object. The article and the paper, uh, they also cite some eyewitness reports of a police officer who says um, even while watching the UFO with his binoculars, he couldn't make out any outline. And there's also a quote from the professional pilot who is an eyewitness. He said that, the ship wasn't really visible and was totally silent, but the lights spanned about a mile long and half a mile wide. The lights went from corner to corner. It was directly above Highway 67, traveling towards Stephenville at a high rate of speed, about 3,000 miles per hour is what I would estimate. That quotes from a professional pilot who witnessed the UFO, whatever that means in this case. And if you continue reading on the USA Today posting, You'll see where some, we'll cough, cough, we'll say official explanations for the object range from an airliner that the sun was playing tricks on people's eyes with somehow, as well as the ever-popular flares. Um, there's just one problem with that theory, the article continues. The military didn't have any planes in the air at the time of the original sightings. Well, MUFON is on the case as well. The Mutual UFO Network sent people there to investigate and to meet with other people and witnesses. And the MSNBC article that I have link, linked up on livefromroswell.com quotes the Texas MUFON director, Ken Cherry, as saying, In an extremely small number of cases, we will get a mass sighting like this, i.e. many witnesses. And it seems to me that it's just that very sheer uh, volume of witnesses is what is, that's part of what helped turn this story into such a well-received Internet phenomenon. I'd say that and the credibility and the credentials of some of the witnesses involved. And uh, this one turned out to be such a credible UFO sighting, in fact, that CNN's Larry King decided to dedicate his entire Friday night program uh, to the pilot and other witnesses from Stephenville, as well as bringing on out-of-the-blue documentary filmmaker James Fox, and then everybody's favorite nuclear physicist, Stanton Friedman, who uh, many of you know has lectured hundreds of times on the topic UFOs are real in universities in over the past decades. So just winding down my public service portion here, um, if you go to livefromroswell.com, you'll see where I found and linked you some of the clips from this Friday's Larry King Live uh, from CNN. And uh, that's on YouTube and on Google mixed up, as well as Frank Warren's site, I have a link to, where he has posted the entire typed transcript of the CNN special. Larry King doing yet another program on UFOs. I think he likes the topic. It, either way, it's news, and he's, I guess, being responsible by reporting the news as it's going all across the, I'd say global, but for sure national media here in the U.S. So you can check out those links at your leisure. But, hey, do it after giving my guests a listen tonight, okay? But, um, coming up here in just a minute, we have as our guests Paul and Philip Collins. The Collins brothers are co-authors of The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, an examination of epistic autocracy from the 19th to the 21st century, which sounds rather heady, I know. But dumbing that down uh, just a bit for folks like me and some of you out there, their book is described on Amazon as essential 
for those who want to understand the ideological roots of the globalists trying to bring about the New World Order. Uh, there are brothers, and Paul Collins is also the author of The Hidden Face of Terrorism, The Dark Side of Social Engineering from Antiquity to September 11th, which his brother Philip edited. Both of them have degrees in several years of college study relating to politics and, in their words, the shadowy undercurrents of world political dynamics. On LiveFromRoswell.com, you'll see a fuller version of both of their biographies, as well as links to their book. And they also have many other articles of this nature that they've had published on ConspiracyArchive.com and elsewhere. Of interest uh, tonight, however, is their contention that the UFO community is well-primed, uh, perhaps more so than other social groups, for acceptance of the New World Order, simply through the stories associated with Majestic 12 documents. That sounds a little intriguing to me, so uh, I wanted to make sure if we got them both on the phone, Paul and Philip, are you both here with me? I'm here, Guy. Sure am. Yeah. Okay, that's both of you. Well, thank you for uh, giving up the second half of the big game by joining us tonight. <laughs> Welcome to the program. <laughs> no problem. Thank you. Great. I guess you're sharing the line. Is that how we'll manage direct questions and such to both of you, right? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Great. Neat. Hey, well, folks, if at any time you want to interact or pose a question to tonight's guest, you can either call in live on our toll-free number. It's one 786 We'll put you on with them. Or you can shoot me an email. It's talktome, T-A-L-K-T-O-M-E, at livefromroswell.com, and I'll read it aloud to both of them. And I do appreciate it when you include your name and maybe the city that you're writing from, but I constantly refresh that email address throughout the program. And, of course, we have listeners in the virtual auditorium that can always put their hand up via the Pal Talk system and just jump right in with us live for a minute or two after, uh, during the program. So feel free to get involved. And, guys, if you don't mind, I would like to go back a bit before the publication of the book we're talking about tonight to the hidden face of terrorism because I'm just guessing that it helps set a pretext for your views going into this one. Um, so what's, uh, what's the original book about? The uh, Hidden Face of Terrorism basically looks at terrorism from a different perspective than uh, about orthodox academia is, is used to presenting it to the public as. It, it looks at, at uh, terrorism as a social engineering tool, which is what it really is to the power elite. The, the power elite basically being those oligarchs those individuals who, who believe in oligarchy that exist above government and see government as their personal prostitute that they uh, use to, uh, to keep the sheeple, the rabble, uh, in line and in check. Um, they, they see uh, um, uh, terrorism as a tool by which you break people down psychologically. You reduce them to what is known as a tabula rasa, and the tabula rasa is basically a blank slate. And um, uh, you then proceed to write a new script upon that blank, sl uh, blank slate. And for the, uh, the elite, it would be a, a more authoritarian uh, script. Uh, people who once believed in uh, freedom and in the, uh, the uh, principles that the founding fathers uh, placed in our in our in the in the freedom documents in our founding documents. Uh, th these people now would value security over freedom and would actually 
uh, become very sacrificial and, and believe that that uh, believe in in trading off uh, freedoms in, in return for security or at least the illusion of security and uh, that's that's what the terrorism is is used to do trauma uh, has a has a profound effect upon the psychological makeup of of, of people it it has a tendency to uh, to make them uh, pliable and to uh, reduce them to a state uh, where uh, suggestibility rises up. Uh, it, it, they, they, they are more open to uh, suggestions and to prescriptions that during regular times of peace and uh, tranquility they, they would otherwise find to be reprehensible and uh yeah like that's invasion the, of our invasion of our email invasion of tapping our phone lines things like that that we would just find ridiculous in any other time mm -hmm. all of a sudden all of a sudden such prescriptions become very appealing and uh actually uh the people would actually consider allowing uh such such invasive uh, activities um, uh, because they believe that it'll make them safe and you know, this is this is basically what what traumatic events uh, what what they do to people um, you know they it reduces them to uh, to uh, a, a childlike state if you recall when you were a child um, freedom wasn't the first you know foremost thing in your in your mind so much as it right. was you know, having a bed to sleep in, having food on the table, and having somebody to, uh, you know, uh, basically protect you. And recess and leisure. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> kind of makes the analogy for adults in America today, too. Yes, yes. And uh, that's that's what uh, terrorism is, uh, does with with people. So, so for the elite, for the power elite, um, and, and their prostitutes in government, terrorism ceases to be seen as a crime. It's not seen as uh, the, uh, their perspective is that it's a it's a wep it's a it's a, a, a form of social engineering, of of manipulating social change and steering uh, so, um, social change in a in the direction that you desire it to go. Yeah. That you as the governing body or above governing body, yes, saying? yes, okay. yes, the, you being the, uh, the the power elite, and and so yeah, that's what the uh, the first book that um, covered, and I looked at a few cases in it. I looked at the Reichstag uh, fire, of course, and I looked at uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, 9/11. We I looked at I looked at uh, uh, the Northwoods documents. Of course, the, the Northwoods plan was never carried out. <clears throat> um, uh, Kennedy fired Limnitzer, and uh, and uh, the oh, um, I've heard of that. Mm -hmm. it, Tell me what that was about. I mean, I've heard of it. I don't know if a lot of the listeners have, but that's um, Kennedy era. It was something to do with creating panic in the United States, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was basically a plan to have several false flag terrorist attacks here in the United States. Um, um, an attack on Guantanamo, uh, an attack on airliners, uh, 
uh, even uh, the uh, American space program would would be targeted by these mm. attacks. And then all of these terrorist events would be uh, pinned on Castro, and uh, the pretext would thus be set for an invasion of, of Cuba. And, uh, of course, uh, Kennedy found this idea to be just reprehensible, and he fired uh, Limnitzer, who was the uh, head of the Joint Chiefs at that time for, um, for that and many other wild ideas that, that he had. But if the plan had gone through, it would have basically, uh, you know, torn people down psychologically um, and, and uh, um, you know, placed them in a, in a position, psychologically speaking, where they would accept the idea of, of invading of um, Cuba and, and um, going along with whatever other uh, plans might have might have come uh, uh, been in the works uh, probably some sort of national security or um, oh what's for, just a, a national lockdown all of a sudden yeah, in the, the name uh, of security so yeah. that plan was proposed and rejected earlier in American history huh? yes yes mm-hmm but like you're saying, yeah, that might have led to something draconian speaking, uh, domestically speaking. And, um, yeah, it, it, my, my point in the book in bringing it up was, was to show that, that people of power and influence actually uh, contemplate such ideas. <laughs> it, it, because um, most, most people uh, just don't really... Uh, don't, don't think they they think that the that the people higher up the global food chain think on the same wavelength as they do and they don't and so i wanted to just uh, dispel the myth that that uh, individuals such as the rockefellers duponts the vanderbilts the the rothschilds that these people uh, think like we do they they don't they uh, come from a totally different perspective that can be seen as as uh, almost sociopathic in a lot of in a lot of respects. And so, so that, at least with your first book, are are you hinting um, or are you uh, leaning towards a belief that that is the case today with modern terrorism, nine one one, et cetera, mm-hmm. even the Oklahoma City bombing? Yes, yes. Although I want to throw a disclaimer out there, um, I do not believe that nine eleven was an inside job. I don't. I I totally totally completely against the whole 9-11 truth movement. Um, the the uh, whole idea that there were actual government operatives on the ground shooting cruise missiles off at the Pentagon or placing demo charges in the building is absolutely ridiculous because then you would be able to directly incriminate the government. Uh, do I believe there was government complicity involved in 9-11? Yes, I do. But what you have to understand is that all terrorism is surrogate warfare. You do it through surrogates. You don't do it directly. And, and so um, you, you would work through a group like al-Qaeda, which actually ties back to the American intelligence community through Pakistani ISI, because Pakistani ISI is really nothing more than an appendage of the uh, Central Intelligence Agency here in the United States. As a matter of fact, the head of Pakistani ISI uh, the, what, whoever they select uh, to head 
CISI must be approved by the American DCI, the Director of Central Intelligence, under uh, under um, the uh, the treaties and the agreements that we have with with uh, Pakistan. I'm guessing you've had to, given your political uh, bent and nature, world politics, especially you've seen the movie Charlie Wilson's War with Tom Hanks already recently. <laughs> I'm fairly disgusted with what they are trying to. Uh, show in that movie, actually, uh, but, uh, I, I mean, because uh, Charlie Wilson was anything but a hero. Charlie Wilson is basically, uh, was Edwin Wilson's uh, man in, 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 in Congress. He was the, uh, he, he was the, the guy, uh, Edwin Wilson was the guy who basically set up the private intelligence network that would allow uh, Ted Shackley and Tom Kleins and the Directorate of Operations to continue covert operations uh, when uh, during the time when uh, when Congress was not going to give a red cent to any covert operations anywhere in the world, and uh, basically uh, through uh, through Charlie Wilson, um, um, the, the elite in um, the British power elite and the American power elite and the Saudi elite, the Saudi royals uh, 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 allowed. Uh, Pakistan to uh, to gain uh, the nuclear bomb and to, to create the first Islamic bomb. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I just I, I I didn't like the whole idea that of of portraying um, um, Charlie Wilson as this hedonist that found a cause and found a righteous cause to stand for and and being the guy who uh, basically ended the Cold War. What what he did is that he set things up where we would trade one nuclear boogeyman, the Soviet Union, for another nuclear boogeyman, uh, which would be Pakistan, which was really nothing more than Saudi Arabia's nuclear proxy in, there in, in that region of the world. Well, it came to mind simply because uh, the way they portrayed um, U.S.-sponsored, or so to speak, terrorism, but done through other hands, which is uh, the connection you were making earlier. Oh. We, were, we were funding it, we were allowing it, but... We didn't want to be caught red-handed, complicit. Exactly. To start a war with the Soviets. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And if you if you look at the uh, Maktab al Kidimat, which was uh, uh, Osama bin Laden's uh, group back then, um, um, it was nurtured through the ISI, and the ISI was basically our our conduit, our our funnel. Uh, at that time for fighting uh, covertly with the Soviet Union after the, uh, after the Soviet inva- invasion of Afghanistan, something that we enticed them to do because um, what many people don't know is that, is that um, we started to uh, basically funnel support to the, uh, to the rebels uh, they're taunting, and, and those rebels would uh, begin to taunt uh, the the, uh, the Soviet uh, region, and um, we were basically enticing the Soviet Union to invade, and uh, okay. and we started supporting them so that the Soviet Union would go in, uh, go in, and um, we could then uh, do this whole Hegelian tit for tat, where we had uh, taken the fall during um, during um, um, the Vietnam War and now they would uh, take take a dive with uh, with their own uh, their equivalent of Vietnam being Afghanistan 
actually, I just wanted to lay some of that groundwork to give both myself and listeners um, an idea of your background in politics and how you view terrorism uh, more as a uh, almost a function than random acts. Mm-hmm. And you've used a couple words. We're down about two minutes before the break, but if you can real quickly, we may have to pick it up. Uh, you've used a couple words like a glickerky that I think are applicable to what we'll be talking about tonight when we get to the Majestic 12 documents and ufology and the New World Order in general. Would you go ahead, before we take off uh, for a break in about two minutes, define just that concept and that word? Uh, I think other people in the audience may know it from uh, Jim Marr's book, Rule by Secrecy, but you used very early on when you were talking about a glickarchy, OGL. Oh, oligarchy. oligarchy. Yeah, oligarchy. Thank you. Thank you. And okay. I, has this been mostly Paul speaking so far? Oh, this, yeah, this has been mostly Paul. Okay, I just so. want to make sure I, I call you both correctly as you go into it. No, that's fine. Um, oligarchy is basically the idea of rule by a few. Um, it's it's the idea of 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 a government of a, a nation or or a planet being governed by a small clique an elite few uh, of people, uh, as opposed to having any kind of democratic institutions that would allow the people to have a say in how, uh, in how they're governed. Um, and um, people that would favor uh, the idea of, of oligarchy would be individuals uh, further up the food chain, such as the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, the DuPonts, uh, the Rothschilds, these families that have generational wealth, and uh, um, th- th- that's that's basically, in a nutshell, what uh, what an oligarchy is 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 uh, rule by a few, as opposed to right. what we have here in the United States, which is a republic with with uh, several democratic institutions uh, built in that allow the people, uh, the, the 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 great mass of people, the common people, to have a say. And, and how they and how their government runs things. Okay, well, let me uh, cut you off for a second. We'll go to a, a little bit of music and commercial. When we come back, we'll get into definitions of like technocracy, technocracy, and then your book titled "The Ascendancy of the Scientific Di- Dictatorship," because you apparently do believe that such a thing, rule by the few, is what's happening in the world today. Correct. Correct. Fascinating. We'll be tying that into Majestic Twelve documents in the UFO community on live from Roswell after this break. Welcome back to Live from Roswell. I'm your host, Guy Malone, broadcasting globally on the Paranormal Radio Network. We're still at the very beginning of our conversation with Paul and Philip Collins, brothers and co-authors of the book, The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship. There's more information on the book available right now on livefromroswell.com. And we're slowly going to be moving our way into a discussion of how ufology's belief in the Majestic 12 documents plays right into the New World Order's hands. And you can join in the fun by calling us anytime during the program, toll-free, with the questions for the Collins brothers, not the Cohen brothers, the Collins brothers, <laughs> at 877-786-0562, or send me your questions 
via email at talk to me at livefromroswell.com. You get that Collins Brothers segment every now and then? <laughs> Actually, I get more of the Phil Collins thing. Oh, yes. Yeah, We're I, playing Genesis yeah, during the breaks, by the way. <laughs> I, yeah, I quit Genesis and quit playing <laughs> drums and all that stuff. I got twice the hair and not even half the money, so... <laughs> Yeah, that's entirely intentional on my part, just like Genesis Music for our programming <laughs> during the breaks. That wasn't the producer. <laughs> okay, um, tell us a little bit about the book I've got uh, posted up at Live from Roswell. I'll, I'll admit, it's a big book that I've not read, and I think I'm doing good to be able to pronounce the title correctly in one breath. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, the basic thesis of the ascendancy of the scientific dictatorship, it actually began... Uh, to develop while I was in a course over science and religion a, a while back. It was, I believe, in 1999, something like that. Uh, it was just before I was going to receive my associate's degree. But for me, that course over science and religion affirmed the contentions of controversial thinkers like Thomas Kuhn and Charles Fort. Um, in that course, which should have been more appropriately titled Scientism 101, I had first-hand experience with what Charles Fort called the orthodox conventionality of science. I just, I basically recognized this epistemological rigidity with which modern science approached phenomena and the sociological considerations according to which certain conclusions were made. All of these conclusions seemed to affirm a particular worldview which was inherently technocratic and morally uh, anarchistic. Many scientists were just basically acting like priests in lab coats, uh, providing authoritarian paradigms with scientific legitimization. And the theoreticians who were virtually canonized in my science and religion course, in particular, of course, being Darwin, uh, all advocated some pretty dubious, if not downright, anti-democratic forms of governance. So, in short, I had a, a brush with what could only be considered characterized as the, an epistemological cartel. And for the listeners, basically epistemology, um, epistemological being derived from the word epistemology. Epistemology is derived from the Greek word, word episme, which means knowledge or knowing, and as is the word science, which is derived from the Latin word scientia, which also means uh, knowledge and knowing. And basically what we have today is we have a particular kind of uh, knowledge given primacy. In particular, that knowledge is radical empiricism, the uh, epistemological contention that all uh, knowledge is derived exclusively through the senses. Um, and uh, basically all other forms of knowledge are precluded from serious consideration. What are those other forms of knowledge that you would uh, uh, say are contenders? Well, for instance, uh, the, uh, cognitio fidei, or the cognition of faith, uh, divine revelation, uh, for those of, of, you know, a particular religious, uh, uh, particular religious uh, affiliation, whatever uh, their particular uh, religious predispositions would be. Um, there's also... Uh, more uh, rational, uh, more rationalism uh, associated uh, forms of uh, knowledge. And by rationalism, I mean it's more conceived within the mind, within with abstract, supra-sensible thoughts, not sensible thoughts, 
suprasensible, meaning above the senses. Um, and the problem is, is how, the, how this paves the way for a scientific dictatorship, which, by the way, was a term coined by Aldous Huxley. Um, the uh, uh, paradigm of uh, radical empiricism, it was actually extended to the whole of the social body by some very early Enlightenment thinkers. Um, those Enlightenment thinkers being, in particular, uh, Henri de Saint-Simon and uh, Auguste Comte, his, his uh, protege. And, of course, Auguste Comte was the founder of the uh, social sciences, of sociology, and that pretty much underscores the technocratic origins of uh, the social sciences right there. Um, but basically, when you extend radical empiricism, the belief in sense certainty, the belief that all knowledge is derived from the senses, when you extend that to the social body, what you uh, derive from that is what's known as the organic theory or physiological interpretation of the state. It, it basically holds that the uh, physiological realities uh, underpinning uh, human physiology also apply to the broader uh, uh, social organism. That's what sociologists, in fact, refer to it as, as the social organism. The state becomes analogous to an or a living organism, and we become analogous to cells. And, uh, of course, cells are subordinated to the larger body. Uh. Likewise, the individual is subordinated to the collective. And uh, this uh, sort of theory was uh, popular with uh, individuals such as Ernest Haeckel, who was uh, the uh, chief mentor of uh, Adolf Hitler, uh, the one uh, who inculcated Adolf Hitler into social Darwinism. Um, it's, also, it's also very popular uh, with uh, many UFO cults, which I trust we'll be getting into a little bit later, uh, one of which being uh, the Raelian movement. The Raelian movement promotes uh, the physiological interpretation of the state and the organic theory of, of the state. Um, also uh, very much uh, part and parcel of uh, the emergent scientific dictatorship is a religious adherence to evolutionary theory. Um, and basically that, of course, began with uh, uh, Charles Darwin. Um, Charles Darwin was uh, basically surrounded by technocrats, elitist, racist, and these men shaped Darwin's thinking and in turn his theories. And it kind of affirms the uh, adage uh, put forth by uh, Miguel de Cervantes in Don Quixote, quote, tell me what co company thou keepest, and I'll tell thee what thou art, unquote. So basically, Darwin, uh, he affirmed this maxim because he came along to proffer a form of elitism that was now premised upon biology. Darwinism basically represented an attempt to scientifically dignify a worldview that was politically and socially expedient to the elite of his day. Darwin sculpted his theory along the contours of his own worldview, which was strongly influenced by questionable ideologues like T.H. Huxley, who was a racist. He was a fellow of the Masonic Royal Society. He himself was a Freemason. He was a member of an oligarchical dynasty, and he was one of the individuals who was responsible for the formation of the Rhodes Roundtable groups, which we'll probably be getting along here too, uh, as well. But uh, Darwin was also uh, influenced by his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, who was 
was himself a Freemason. He was a member of uh, the Lunar Society, which was a circle of technocrats in uh, Britain. Uh, he was a supporter of the radical uh, Jacobins in France, which uh, basically carried out the terror. Um, he was also his uh, beliefs were also shaped by uh, Harriet Martineau, who was a Comtean sociocrat, uh, one of the protégés of August Comte, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, Harriet Martineau was also a positivist and an apologist for the corporate interests of the Whigs and an advocate of eugenical uh, regimentation. And then Darwin was uh, heavily influenced by Herbert Spencer, who was a theoretician of the uh, technocratic social sciences and an advocate of Britain's genocidal uh, colonial warfare. But all these individuals acted as host for, I guess you could characterize it as, uh, ideational contagions that were endemic to the ruling class, and they in large measure shaped Darwin's thinking. And Darwin's thinking, Darwin, Darwinism itself, became one of the uh, one of the chief sciences that legitimized 20th century uh, socialist totalitarian regimes, such as uh, Nazi Germany. Again, for instance, uh, a uh, evolutionist by the name of uh, Sir Arthur Keith said that no other person had worked so hard to make uh, Nazi Germany conform to evolutionary theory than Adolf Hitler. Um, likewise, uh, the uh, uh, the Soviet Union and, and communism uh, was heavily premised upon uh, Darwinian biology. Now, they were more egalitarian than uh, some of the more ardent uh, Darwin, uh, Darwinists. But... Um, they basically they basically liked Darwinism because it uh, was an anti-teleological uh, worldview. It, it rejected the transcendent origin of being. It rejected God. It basically naturalized man, made man into little more than an animal. And uh, an animal, of course, that it can be basically placed in a cage, and that cage became the state, uh, which according to Marxist theory, it was supposed to wither away, but never did wither away. And if you'll notice with a lot of uh, Marx's uh, writing, uh, he never did pinpoint the, the, you know, the indeterminate point at which the state would wither away. And that's probably because with socialism, whether of the communist or fascist varieties, uh, the state's not going to wither away. It, it, socialism will perpetuate a an eternal state. And that's basically what the scientific dictatorship is. It's, it's, it's a state uh, socialism that's premised upon ostensible scientific legitimizing theories. And, and uh, basically uh, that, that synopsizes all of the uh, 20th century uh, totalitarianism that we've seen. That through science, or at least the, the presumption of good science, mm -hmm. and that uh, the people in power, you're saying the 20th century globally has just shaped into a, a large number of people being undemocratically ruled by a very small, self-interested group of people, right. I guess. Right. And also, if I may add, it's, it's also science being, science being a legitimate form of knowledge uh, right. that has a legitimate place in a hierarchy of knowledge. Science itself um, cannot be the only lens through which uh, we view reality because, because science is fundamentally uh, a system
system of quantification. That is, it's a system of measurement. It's a ruler. It's a yardstick. And uh, the problem with uh, systems of quantification is eventually systems of quantification come across entities that dwarf its own units of measurement. There are, uh, it, it must preoccupy itself entirely with quantifiable entities. And uh, humanity, being uh, irreducibly complex, will not be uh, will not be reduced to a quantifiable entity. Cannot be easily reduced to such a uh, a simplistic template. But the scientific view of the state attempts to do just that with them. And this is known as scientism. It's the it's the fetishization of science. It's basically the belief that science should be universally imposed upon all fields of investigation, including uh, questions of governance, of morality, and in questions of governance, uh, in questions of morality, science seldom ever has been applied very well. And that's where you see uh, scientific socialism as the uh, has been espoused by, for instance, the communist Chinese, which are just, you know, some of the 20th century's uh, greatest mega murderers. Um, you also see it again with the Holocaust and Nazism. Uh, it's basically the idea that you can basically reduce man to a quantifiable entity, to a simple paint-by-number schematic. And uh, the, the problem is, is that science, again, is just a fundamentally a system of quantification. It ignores the qualitative uh, elements of man, the qualitative elements of governance, the co qualitative elements of reality itself, and that's that's at heart the, at the heart and soul of the scientific dictatorship is the, the the deification of science. The the danger of scientism is that um, freedom, dignity, individualism, uh, God, angels, the devil, these things can't be scientifically quantified, and Therefore, they do not exist. So, uh, so what 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 happens is you have uh, um, you you have the idea of a dictatorship being legitimized by by science, supposedly, because uh, if 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 the me if if human dignity and freedom and and God don't fit on the measuring stick, don't conform to the measuring stick then in, in the minds of the controller, those things does, don't, just don't exist at all. Let's move into how the UFO phenomena actually is um, playing into this, because what you have online is an article about Majestic 12 sure. and the New World, how it plays into the New World Order, stuff like that. So you've, you've used the word technocratic component. That's the rule of science. Yes, it's, it's, it can be used interchangeably with uh, the term scientific dictatorship. Basically, a technocracy is a form of governance where a self-proclaimed cognitive elite rules. They rule by virtue of their ostensible specialized knowledge. Basically, policy professionals establish the governing precepts of all political and economic institutions. Um, in his uh, seminal uh, tract, uh, Tragedy and Hope, the Oxford professor and mentor of uh, Bill Clinton, uh, Carol Quigley, who, by the way, was allowed to view uh, some highly secretive documents of the uh, British ruling class and of those, the roundtable groups that I mentioned earlier, 
Uh, Carol Quigley wrote about an emergent dictatorship of experts in his book, Tragedy and Hope, and that uh, dictatorship of experts would eventually supplant the Democratic voter in the administrative affairs of the state. Um, another individual, uh, Fabian Socialist and purported Freemason, uh, although that has never been completely verified, H.G. Uh, Wells, he also advocated just such a societal configuration in uh, his books, The Open Conspiracy, uh, The New World Order, and The Shape of Things to Come, and various other treaties on global governance, which H.G. Wells expressed quite a preoccupation with uh, in his literature. But um, the MJ-12 documents are conspicuously uh, technocratic in character. When they were released, they helped to promulgate a technocratic paradigm. The MJ-12 documents portray just such a state of affairs as was described by H.G. Wells, as was described by uh, Carol Quigley. Now, whether they're authentic, whether they're phony, we could debate that all night. Um, but the, the purported majestic group that's in those papers represents a technocratic conception of totalitarianism. Its alleged members constitute a coterie of policy professionals. Now, a lot of UFO researchers, they don't identify this thematic thread of technocratic thought because they're preoccupied with flying saucers, with aliens, and they overlook the technocratic implications of the MJ-12 documents. And interestingly enough, many UFO, uh, ufologists do not even object to the notion of policy professionals circumventing America's uh, democratic processes and presiding over decision-making. Instead, they merely object to the obscurantism, the secrecy. Yeah, hiding the fact that the UFOs right, or exactly. bodies are there. That's the big news that grabs our attention. Yeah. And you're saying, well, wait a minute, there's a whole other problem here. We're being ruled by a, a group of non-elected people who are making policy decisions. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, okay. whether, whether or not UFOs are the pretext or uh, an ecological meltdown is the pretext. Um, the, the problem is is that is that um, the, these so-called crises are being are being used to sidestep democracy and and uh, place the, place uh, um, control into the hands of a small group of self-proclaimed self-anointed uh, policy professionals. Yes, so to give you an idea. Um, of the individuals, such individuals who promote the MJ-12 documents, uh, which represent a technocratic societal blueprint, they were first presented by uh, William Moore, uh, Jaime Chandray, and yeah. uh, Stanton and Stanton Friedman. Friedman. Um, the, the important thing uh, with with William Moore, people uh, should realize that he was feeding uh, disinformation to uh, Paul Benowitz. And he was working on behalf of uh, Richard Doty of AFOSI, and uh, and, and 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 through him and what he fed to uh, to Benowitz, the whole uh, popular myth that exists within the UFO community today that there is a treaty between uh, aliens and the and the government, and there's basically some kind of alien uh, uh, government collaboration going on. Uh, that 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 the, he was basically responsible for that whole myth popping up yeah. as a result. But what we basically 
uh, seeing Chris Carter uh, popularize even further in the uh, the X Files yes. television show. As a matter of fact, I I believe that uh, Richard Doty, who William Moore was spreading this disinformation, was feeding this disinformation to Paul Benowitz on behalf of um, Do- Doty, actually wrote two episodes of the X Files. Yes, and Stanton Friedman, who has pushed the MJ12 documents uh, quite religiously. He ends all of his lectures with an outright mandate, an outright call for uh, global government, which uh, he says, quote, <laughs> who speaks for planet Earth, Argentina, unquote. Now, global government government is by its very nature undemocratic. It just, it, it, it's, premised on, it's premised on undemocratic principles. I mean, we, there would be no uh, separation of powers. Um, instead of, of, of political, economic, and military power being split up amongst various nation states, it's all concentrated and centralized in the hands of one, of, of one international entity. And, and uh, that kind of monopoly, that kind of cornering the market on that kind of power, that it, you, you're, you're talking about a de facto dictator right there, whatever international entity it is that ends up having that power. Yeah. But so you don't think that a, a global government could ever be achieved by voting? You know, six billion people vote who they want to be in power? <laughs> the, the, the problem is, is that just because it's the, the power would have to be centralized. Uh, and and when, when, given the highly centralized nature uh, um, um, the idea that that um, the, the the people would would be able to have anything that that looks like that even resembles Jeffersonian democracy is just is, is it's it's laughable. Yeah. Um, I mean, hey, on that note, we're going to cut into a break. Actually, I hate to cut off right here. Show was getting good. We'll be back with Paul and Philip Collins. Uh, discussing Majestic 12, global government, and UFOs as social engineering tools after this break on Live from Roswell. I can't hear it on the phone, can you? No, I can't hear it okay. I heard music, but then I it usually switches it. Hey, welcome back once again to Live from Roswell. I'm your host, Guy Malone, broadcasting over the Paranormal Radio Network. During the breaks, you've been listening to Genesis, by the way, which I considered appropriate considering we have Phil Collins on the program tonight, <laughs> along with Brother Paul. And, hey, you know all that chattering I was doing at the very top of the program about the DVDs from the Roswell Conference being mm-hmm. available for $30 off mm-hmm. uh, purchase from this website? Well, just for folks who don't know what's going on there, that's called a commercial, which is a large part of what it takes to bring you quality programming, as well as programming just like this. But instead of making you listen to commercials about my stuff, you could be making people listen to commercials about your stuff, either with your own audio during our programming breaks or by me reading a script that you provide to around 35, 40,000 weekly listeners like I'm doing now. It starts at about $25 for a 30-second spot, so that's less than a penny a listener. And there's advertising info posted on livefromroswell.com if you've got an event or a product or a book or something like that that you'd like people to hear about here. But once again, tonight's guests are Paul and Philip Collins. 
they are brothers and co-authors of the book, The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship. There's more info on the book available on our website, livefromroswell.com. And we're moving into a discussion of how UFOlogy and belief in the Majestic 12 plays into the New World Order's hands. And folks out there can also join in the fun by calling us toll-free with their questions at 877-786-0562 or by writing me at talktome at livefromroswell.com. And what we've established so far in the past hour just through reviewing uh, your books, is the premise that modern government is not so much democratic anymore, but that government is slowly being turned into a rule-by-the-elite system. And much of that paradigm is more science and sensory-based than paying attention to concepts like human dignity, rights, or beliefs in God or morality, etc. So what the Collin brothers have an article linked from livefromroswell.com, which we've been discussing on how the MJ-12 is the true policymakers today rather than a democratic government. And where we left off, I wanted to get into um, you guys' feelings on how does the UFO phenomena relate to the military-industrial complex, as it's so-called. Well, the UFO phenomena relates to it through the personage of Vannevar Bush. And Vannevar Bush uh, underscores the technocratic thread that uh, runs throughout the MJ-12 uh, documents. Bush has been named as one of the uh, members of the purported MJ-12 cabal. Now, again, although the authenticity of the MJ-12 documents remains a source of contention, there is substantial evidence that Bush was involved with activities related to the UFO phenomenon. Between 1950 and 1951, uh, Canadian documents directly implicated Bush in a highly secretive UFO study being conducted within the Research and Development Board, and uh, the Canadian scientist Wilbert B. Smith uh, confirmed this contention. Uh, Bush also advocated the establishment of a so-called democratic technocracy in the United States. And by democratic technocracy, he meant a democracy amongst the, so the ostensibly uh, educated body of people. And those educated, of course, would be those who were constitutive of the elite, those who occupied the higher levels of the uh, socioeconomic uh, food chain. That, that goes back to our question before the break. Um, world government could not be anything, represent, it, it would not resemble anything that we know, uh, we know Jeffersonian democracy. It would basically be democratic uh, centralism where a small group of people embody the will of the majority. In other words, uh, a small elite supposedly can determine what the will of the great mass of people is. Yes, but Vannevar Bush uh, was inst instrumental in the formation of uh, several organizations that would expedite America's transformation into a technocracy. In, uh, in particular, Bush uh, successfully persuaded President Roosevelt to approve the formation of the National Defense Research Committee in 1940. And this committee would eventually be grafted into the Office of Scientific Research and Development, or the uh, OSRD, which uh, managed the infamous uh, Manhattan Project. Uh, Bush himself would act as the organization's director. And in a brief caveat, if I may, I'd also like to mention that H.G. Wells, who I brought up earlier, was the chief inspiration of the Manhattan Project. Uh, World War II would come along, and 
it would come to an explosive end with the uh, dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And H.G. Wells can be connected with these events uh, through the individual of Leo Zillard. Uh, Zillard was a Hungarian-American physicist who conceived the nuclear chain reaction and worked on the Manhattan Project. And he read H.G. Wells' book, The World Set Free. And in this novel, Wells coins the term atomic bomb. Uh, literary critic uh, Martha A. Barter uh, has actually stated, quote, in a very real sense, through Zillard, Wells designed the Manhattan Project, unquote. The Manhattan Project was, in essence, uh, a sociocultural Gedanken experiment uh, inspired by Wells. And for the listeners, Gedanken experiment is basically the German word for thought experiments. A Gedanken experiment involves the tangible enactment of hypothetical scenarios and hopes of re-sculpting reality and creating a new consensus. Basically, ideas are tested and the underlying assumptions of the current culture are called into question. And as the sociocultural thought experiment progresses, it might give rise to revisions of the status quo and the emergence of new cultural paradigms. Thus, the world of fact becomes more close to the world of fiction. And the a priori assumptions of uh, literature, of normative fiction, or in this case of science fiction literature, become the de facto precepts of culture itself. And a sense, fiction becomes a precursor to fact. And the famous science fiction writer and editor uh, John W. Campbell actually proposed that uh, sci-fi presented an unparalleled opportunity for sociocultural thought experiments, <laughs> and uh, basically the Manhattan Project affirmed this contention. But through Zillard, H.G. Uh, Wells managed to uh, change the face of warfare forever, and with the advent of uh, nuclear warfare and the prospect of nuclear warfare, the world would witness the dialectical manipulation of the Cold War. Uh, East and West would be pitted against one another, and what uh, the former national security advisor, the big Neil Brzezinski, would call a calculated game of chicken. And the dialectic of East versus West basically facilitated technological escalation, or that is to say, an arms race, which in turn acted as a catalyst for the technocratic restructuring of America, and Bush was uh, instrumental in this restructuring. Basically, Does this turn uh, into a game of whoever has the best science wins? Yeah, exactly, absolutely. That's exactly what technological escal uh, escalation is. Technological escalation is a natural correlative of uh, technocratic governance. But um, basically, Vannevar Bush, he acted as an administrator uh, who allocated federal funds during World War II, and through doing so, Bush transformed uh, scientific research in the United States and entangled the government, military, and elite academic researchers into an intricate technocratic web. And according to uh, the author uh, Frank Fisher, along with the uh, Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, the uh, Office of Price Administration, the Office of War Mobilization, and the War Production Board, Vannevar Bush's OSRD would constitute an integral portion of the administrative machinery that would contribute to the technocratic restructuring of America. And this vast uh, constellation of administrative machinery would come to be known as the military-industrial complex. In part, it was Bush's advocacy of military funding for scientific research that facilitated the rise of what's been called big science. 
in the, the scientific research as it pertains to UFO phenomena as well? Yes, it, 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 to a certain extent. The, the, basically, it was, it was research directed directly specifically towards military applications. And, of course, the military took a, an interest in, a, a, an interest in a, a anti-gravitational craft. They took an interest in... Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Basically, what what we brought a Nazi scientist over here to to you know work on which something that Van, Van Afar Bush was opposed to yeah. to his credit. Yeah, to his credit, Van Afar Bush opposed uh, the uh, importation of uh, Nazi of Nazis to the United States. But nonetheless, uh, this, this this sort of this sort of uh, melding of the military and scientific communities uh, basically led to the rise of. Uh, what's been called big science. Big science, the era of big science, has often been criticized as being an age of elitism, and that charge is not without justification, uh, given that era's characteristic restriction of scientific research facilities to all but the already accomplished. Um, the military-industrial complex basically exemplifies uh, that variety of elitism, a fact that was not lost upon none other than President Eisenhower, mm -hmm. whose farewell address admonished audiences about <laughs> the rise of a scientific technological elite. And those were his words. And a scientific technological elite succinctly describes a fully functional technocracy. And it was just towards such an end that Bush worked to uh, achieve. Yet, the um, you might be wondering, well, where do these technocratic themes of Bush's work intertwine specifically with the UFO phenomenon? Well, of course, we have Bush's aforementioned involvement in the Research and Development Board's secretive UFO investigation, but there's also another thematic nexus. This came in 1945 when Bush presented a report to uh, President Truman entitled Science, the Endless uh, Frontier, and in this report, Bush recommended the formation of a national research foundation. And the purpose of that organization would be to cement the ties between academic science, industry, and the uh, military, which had been forged during the war. And this proposal was realized with the establishment of the National Science Foundation in 1950. Now, the National Science Foundation boasts an annual budget of $5.5 billion and it provides approximately 20% of all federally supported basic research conducted by America's colleges and universities. And one of the prominent members of the foundation 
is a sociologist named William Sims Bainbridge. And Bainbridge is particularly interested in UFO cults, which he believes will promulgate a new religious consciousness. And in turn, this new religious consciousness could possibly give rise to a scientific, theocratic order. Bainbridge basically has encouraged uh, social scientists in his papers openly to begin actively experimenting with UFO cults and what he calls religious engineering. And religious engineering, according to Bainbridge, actually it was a term coined by members of another scientific cult, a satanic cult uh, known as the Process Church, with which Bainbridge did a five-year ethnographic study. Um, but the Process uh, the Process Church members referred to what they were doing as religious engineering. It's basically the systematic skills creation of a new religion, and that new religion uh, is sculpted accord, according to whatever is soci uh, socially and politically expedient to those doing the sculpting. So, um, is it to their advantage to start a UFO cult or to just promote the ones that exist? To work with the ones that are existing, sociologists that that have actually that have actually started to do ethnographic studies. He wants them to move beyond just simple, disconnected, objective research and actually start working with the uh, members of the cult in developing a religion and developing specifically a religion that is socially and politically expedient to those who are actually who are doing the social uh, the, the uh, religious engineering. But I'm going to say that it seems uh, almost a flaw in this logic is that UFO cults, though people like me and people listening to the program may be a little more aware of them than average, they really comprise the tiniest percentage of religious belief either in America or in the world. Yeah. How could how could this be spun into a way of controlling the masses he when most people write them off as crazy? Yeah, he argues, and, and they are they are for the large part. Uh, you know, marginalized, and they have very little social or political capital to speak of for now. He argues uh, in one of his papers that with secularization, uh, which of course uh, uh, represents a period of time during which the dominant, the ecclesiastical authorities, the orthodoxies, are weakened, he says that these cults can actually explode and actually uh, begin to ascend the hierarchy of, of societal influence and begin to gain more and more political and social capital. And if you look around, we do see a weakening of the traditional orthodoxies. Now, whether or not uh, UFO cults will manage to capitalize on that is another question. Ba Bainbridge sees secularization as a clearing of the, of, of the spiritual marketplace. And so... When you have a vacuum that, such as what you would have with, with uh, the, the period of secularization, when you have a transitional period, all you need is a UFO religious cult that has been given an air of sophistication by these religious engineers uh, that, and, 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 given a, and that sophistication in turn gives it an appeal to the mass, uh, to, to the masses. 
and and they would uh, the the right one with the, with all the right trappings would actually shoot off like a rocket. Yeah. But same. Do you think a lot of people would abandon their Muslim or Christian or Buddhist beliefs if there were like a massive UFO sighting or disclosure event? I, I and don't. Then a charismatic cult cult leader stepped in to grab it, or well, the 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 Abraham the Abrahamic faiths and the other faiths of, of the past would basically already have been so seriously weakened by the secularization process to where these these cults could then step in and become and could then could become the uh, the surrogates i i don't yeah. i don't know if uh, if a, a rash of sightings would would necessarily weaken the abrahamic faiths they would already be weakened by the uh, by the uh, secularization that the social engineers would would do be would be involved and engaged in yeah. Uh, not to mention that that those who have uh, who adhere to the traditional Abrahamic faiths, some of them might actually be willing to engage in religious engineering themselves and re-sculpt the very fabric of their uh, of their religion. It's it's very much like uh, uh, Antonio Gramsci's uh, march through the institutions. Uh, Antonio Gramsci, who was was a socialist theoretician believed that uh, through a systematic march through the institutions, particularly those of traditional religion, you could eviscerate the religions, leave the iconography intact, but uh, basically insert your own rhetoric, supplant uh, the mm. traditional religious doctrine with your own rhetoric. So the substance okay. is gone, but the, uh, but the shell is still there. Yeah. And we do see some religious cults that say that Jesus was a space man. Yeah. Yeah, there's a ton of, within the UFO movement out there, there's a lot of people saying it's UFOs that are mentioned in the Bible. Right. So you don't really have to throw out your Bible. You just need to learn how to read it a little differently, and then right. you can still have your have your God and UFOs, too. Right, right. Kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, so you're not going to try to propose that you ufology or UFO cults are going to supplant religion. They're just actually going to change it almost from within. Right, exactly. And, and the, 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 what, what we're talking about there is, is inherently neo-Gnostic, which I'll, I'll get along to in just a little bit, because it's, it's some heavy-duty conceptual and philosophical material there. But basically what Bainbridge, what Williamson's Bainbridge, calls the scientific theocracy that he wishes to see presiding over this future society, what he calls it is the Church of God Galactic. And Bainbridge contends that one of the most promising models for this church is none other than Scientology. And of course, Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard was a disciple of the notorious occultist uh, Aleister Crowley. And uh, Scientologists, they correctly identify the more dubious elements of psychiatry in the field's history of psychocognitive manipulation. However, Scientology manages only to supplant that and offer its own variety of uh, brainwashing as an alternative. Uh, now, given his background as a sociologist, it comes as very little surprise that Bainbridge would look upon Scientology so favorably, because the social sciences, I, as I mentioned earlier, have always been technocratic in nature, and that reality, again, is underscored by their origins with Auguste Comte and uh, Henri de Saint-Simon. But Bainbridge's mandate for social scientists to become religious engineers reiterates the Comtean concept of what's known as sociocracy. 
a sociocracy is basically a theocracy, a theocratic order where social scientists act as the dominant priesthood. The religion that this priesthood sculpts is inherently anthropocentric, that is, it's man-centered, and it venerates humanity as symbolically represented through the grand being. Now, this uh, sort of anthropocentric religion is really nothing new. History is replete with doctrines of the emergent deity of man, man spelled with a capital M. For instance, you have uh, Nietzsche's Ubermensch, you have Hegel's Weltgeist, you have Freemasonry's uh, great architect of the universe. These are just a few cases in point. But today's UFO cults proper what they call, or what has been come to known as, an exotheological Christ who can help man unlock his purported intrinsic divinity. And this really harkens back to the ancient mystery religion that uh, originated in Babylon and Egypt roughly 6,000 years ago. Uh, like that religion, the UFO religion promises the same thing, apotheosis, or deification, becoming a god. Of course, someone else made the same promise of man's murky past, and anybody who has read the book of Genesis knows who okay. that is. The three uh, lies in the garden, same thing, yes, you can be exactly. like God. And conceptually and philosophically, this is a slippery slope leading to what's known as Luciferianism, <coughs> which is the ruling class religion. Uh, Luciferianism has been uh, disseminated on the popular level as uh, secular humanism, and it's basically it's centered around Protagoras' uh, anthropocentric dictum that man is the measure of all things. Um, but you can see how religious engineering with UFO cults is instrumental in mass inculcation of people into the ruling class religion through that. In a sense, the UFO community is already becoming a quasi-sociocracy. Uh, intelligence operatives like Richard Doty, uh, who we've uh, mentioned earlier, have vigorously promoted the concept of an exotheological Christ. Uh, Doty's neo-Messianic assertions enjoyed mass dissemination through ufologists like Linda Moulton Howe. And uh, intelligence operatives employ psychological warfare uh, strategies that originated with OSS social scientists, social scientists that were in the OSS, which acted as the precursor to the CIA. So in a sense, social scientists have already acted as like this priesthood for a new religious consciousness in an emergent theocratic order that's sociocratic in nature, and they have begun to kind of embed themselves within the UFO community. When you were talking, we were going earlier about how um, terrorist acts are often used to shape society mm -hmm. or uh, make them a little more permeable, much more willing to accept loss of rights and other, other things that they would not consider uh, acceptable, like you said, things that we would consider reprehensible. In some cases, like it's okay to tap our phone and email in the name of national security. We covered a lot of that in the first hour. And I remember something we discussed on email a little bit um, weeks prior to the program. How do you think that um, the UFO phenomena can actually be used to provide a, an external threat or something that would be socially and politically acceptable to bring about uh, much more control by the elite, like you were talking earlier? Well, let me start that discussion by going all the way back to, um, to 1961. In that year, um, Secretary of State Dean Rusk, who was a member of the elitist 
Council on Foreign Relations. He hired um, 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 the uh, Institute for Defense Analysis, and um, he wanted uh, that particular institute uh, to come up with a, a study that would uh, show um, how disarmament could lead to the erection of world government. And um, what, what the Institute ended up giving him was uh, a paper entitled A World Effectively Controlled by the United Nations. And it was written by another member of the Council on Foreign Relations, Lincoln P. Bloomfield. And in that paper, um, Bloomfield uh, says that it basically gives a vision of the world that's not unlike what Wells and what other uh, individuals such as Bertrand Russell's Russell had put forward um, a, a world where there is a one uh, international entity that has control over all the nuclear weapons and can thus blackmail wow. the uh, nation states into going along with with uh, with its decrees. Um, but there's one interesting part in the in the uh, in in in, the, in this paper that he in this report that he put together. He says at one point he says. Um, quote, the subordination of states to a true world government appears impossible, but if the communist uh, d dynamic were greatly abated, the West might well lose whatever incentive it has for world government, unquote. So the message here was, was basically, look, uh, at one point, at some point down the road, uh, the, the Soviet boogeyman, the communist boogeyman, is going to lose its psychological sting with the people. You need to create another threat. Some, and so they, so basically the elite began to, uh, to facilitate the rise of, of, of a boogeyman that would replace, re, replace um, um, the, uh, the communist oh, threat. One of them was, of course, the, um, the Islamic bomb, the uh, um, the uh, the the whole um, Islamic terrorist movement that exists in the world today, and another one would be, uh, of course, a threat from beyond, a, a threat uh, that's not of this world. Um, that's from President Reagan's speech, right? Well, Reagan, yes, Reagan actually um, uh, he he said that several different times. He. He entertained that idea, the, the whole idea of the world uh, united uh, due to um, some kind of invasion from, from beyond. The, uh, the concept of an, of an invasion from beyond, and by the way, the beyond is a term that's actually invoked by other literary critics. Basically, the beyond is a situation where man finds himself hopelessly dwarfed, both epistemologically and ontologically. This is a situation where man's experiential knowledge, where his rational mind, are literally overloaded. Blown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, just, just psychocognitively carpet-bombed. But um, one, 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 one uh, document that actually entertained uh, the uh, creation of, of a threat from beyond, uh, in particular, the beyond in this instance being... Uh, extraterrestrial biological entities was the report from Iron Mountain. Now that again, this like like the MJ12 documents, this is a controversial piece of uh, 
of uh, literature because uh, people have disputed its authenticity over and over again. Although I would like to point out that one individual who is slightly more reputable has uh, given uh, appropriated more uh, credibility to the report from Iron Mountain. That was L. Fletcher Prouty. L. Fletcher Prouty said that what he re read in the report from Iron Mountain basically almost echoed word for word what was coming out of the mouths of the whiz kids who worked uh, with uh, Robert McNamara. And L. Fletcher Prouty was the liaison between the Pentagon and Central Intelligence Agency, so you can't label oh, him that's a... that's important to know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you, it just shows that you can't uh, label him a conspiracy theorist. He actually has experiential first-hand knowledge and, you know, basically worked amongst these political power circles. To yeah. Me. So he knows, of, he knew of what he spoke. He's yeah. deceased now. Okay, the question for me in my mind then, based on what we're talking about, is we're asking, could the UFO phenomena be used to jump us into New World Order and global government? The question I'm forming here is, are you guys, do you have an opinion on a, is the UFO phenomena real and is jumping into finding a solution, a, a, a viable alternative, whether it's global government or not? Or are you suggesting that people behind the scenes are somehow inventing this UFO phenomena for the purpose of social engineering? That's our feeling is that it's an invention of, 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 of people behind the scenes, of social engineers, of, of, the, of, of the elite or or those who have prostituted them out themselves out uh, to out to the elite. Yeah, to um, give give you one case in point, you have Orson Welles's uh, classic War the World's Broadcast, and again, right. I mean that was premised uh, that was derived from, interestingly enough, from H. G. Wells's book War of the Worlds, and I've discussed H. Uh, G. Wells earlier in this program and his uh, connection with uh, the whole technocratic thread that's been riding through the uh, plans to establish a world government for so many years. But um, basically, um, um, it was able, that, that uh, Orson Welles' uh, uh, War of the Worlds broadcast was able to generate quite a bit of panic. Uh, it drew, it generated so much panic that it actually drew the attention of specific uh, establishment uh, dignitaries. <laughs> Uh, uh, the oligarchical Rock Rockefeller dynasty, which uh, financed research into the panic surrounding uh, Orson Welles' broadcast. They, the Rockefeller uh, dynasty financed the uh, research through the General Education Board. And uh, Paul Lazarsfeld, uh, Frank Stanton, and uh, Hadley Cantrell uh, were the ones who conducted this research at uh, Princeton University. And, yes, they wanted to know about the mass psychological effects that the uh, broadcast had had on the people. Yeah. And all of these men, by the way, surprise, surprise, were social scientists. And, again, the social sciences exhibit some distinct technocratic proclivities, going all the way back to the inception of the social sciences with August Kahn. But in the forward to a book by the name of uh, The Invasion from Mars, A Study in the Psychology of Panic, uh, Hadley Cantrell uh, basically said, quote, since the budget of the Princeton radio project was obviously unable to anticipate this particular study, the investigation was made possible by a special grant from the General Education Board, unquote. And again, that's a Rockefeller machination. So evidently the Rockefeller, the Rockefeller dynasty 
um, um, felt that that this was a, a phenomenon that needed to be examined. Why? Well, a little bit later into the book, um, Cantrell comments on the uh, Martian scare's didactic value to social scientists. He says, quote, such rare occurrences are opportunities for the social scientists to study mass behavior. This must be exploited when they come. Although the social scientist unfortunately cannot usually predict such situations uh-huh. and have his tools of investigation ready to analyze the phenomena while it is still on the wing, he can begin his work before the effects of the crisis are over and memories are blurred, unquote. Now, <laughs> the very funny... The, 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 the very suspicious uh, part of his findings comes a little bit later when he says that amongst one of the uh, effects that the uh, that the Orson Welles broadcast had was it basically caused many people, and I'll quote him directly, quote, to appealing to some higher power or stronger person whom one vaguely thought could destroy the un- oncoming enemy, unquote. Now, the only stronger person that anybody could have really appealed to for protection was the government, was the state. And that is a, an entity that uh, the Rockefellers and other uh, oligarchical dynasties have managed to co-opt and to control. Because all of the other tra- cherished institutions would basically be helpless. Uh, they, would, would, they would not be able to... Uh, withstand a, uh, a uh, extraterrestrial threat, real or imagined. And so, it, it, that, so that's, that's why, you know, that's why, uh, why uh, the, the, the elite appreciated the, the, uh, the, the effects that the, uh, that wor- the, world, the world's broadcast um, had, and, they, and it certainly gave them motive to invent an extraterrestrial boogeyman. Yeah, and did it work? Um, Oh, go ahead, finish. Oh, sure. Well, did it work? Well, again, how does Stanton Friedman end all his speeches? He called. Yeah, I saw him say that on CNN this weekend. It's as part of what he said: a push for global government. Yeah, an omnipotent, omniscient entity, an all-powerful governmental entity. Because after all, who speaks for Earth? Argentina? No. You have to have some. You have to have something bigger, something bigger than you, and that's basically that's basically what what these findings with with uh, the Rockefeller study into the Orson Welles broadcast uh, also uh, also surmise. So there's uh, there's a little bit of synchronicity there in thought. And I, I think a lot of people are with you, and I'm with you on the idea that a massive external threat could cause enough panic, granted, to make us jump into a new world order or to, to turn control over to whoever can protect us or broker a peace agreement with, uh, with the external threat somehow. What I'm, um, I think, especially on behalf of, because I know my audience very well, is that how are you going to, it seems reasonable that if you wanted that outcome, that you would invent a UFO threat, you would use hidden science technology to make people believe UFOs exist. But in light of all the sightings, oh, in light of all the research in the UFO community that I'm guessing you're more than a little aware of, how are you able to justify saying that everything within the UFO community is actually not genuinely extraterrestrial? 
but it's faked. I'm with you in the sense that a massive threat could cause the outcome of New World Order, but how are you going to disprove that the UFO phenomena is real? Is that kind of the line you were saying? Well, to be, to be, for, to be sure, we really can't say for certain whether or not every instance uh, of uh, sightings are false, whether okay. or not they are false. Okay, that's what I was point. curious yeah. about. The, it, again, what, what we're noticing here, though, is the, is the synchronicities. Uh, for instance, uh, we, we were discussing UFO cults earlier, and one of those uh, UFO cults is the Aetherius Society. And the Aetherius Society believes that our planet is just this little pond in a larger uh, interstellar war. Does that not echo the paradigm that uh, you see being promulgated by the uh, report from Iron Mountain that was promulgated Absolutely. by yeah. the Orson Welles broadcast? And also, well, you have a, a body of, of, of UFO incidents where you have to say, look, we... We, we have to rule out the human factor in these because because it just the, the the incident does not allow for some kind of human manipulation of any sort. You have also a huge body of incidents where you just, where you where you have uh, individuals from the intelligence community being involved that suggest some form of manipulation. You have, for instance, Mothman. You had FBI running around. Um, uh, during that practically point. before the event, yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but you know, you had the, you uh, I, a few other examples that I can think of. Um, you you have um, um, the Heaven's Gates, for instance. The Heaven uh, the Heaven uh, the um, the Heaven Ga Heaven's Gates uh, cult and their the, the suicide that they had. Um, the thirty nine members of the Heaven's Gates cult that committed suicide, they were staying at the mansion of a man named Sam Kushka Fahani. And Kushka Fahani was a retainer for the Shah of Iran. He was an arms dealer. He, he's an arms dealer, and he's, he was an informant for the San Diego FBI at the time of the cult suicide. And we also know that the FBI was running an Operation Heaven's Gates in the San Diego area at that time. So to say that all of that was coincidence is to just strain <laughs> yeah. credulity okay. to the point of breaking. breaking. And... and um, uh, you can uh, you can uh, continue to go down the list. As a matter of fact, David Ferry, who was part of the uh, the um, whole uh, JFK assassination cabal, was involved in one one uh, UFO case. And um, uh, the, 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 all these different uh, intelligence people keep popping up in in different UFO incidents which seems to suggest that there is a lot of human manipulation going on there. Uh, one thing I, uh, another thing I'll point out really quick, uh, it's interesting also that Hadley Cantrell and his uh, team in, in the book Invasion of Mars, which was basically a study of the, uh, of the, the uh, broadcast of War of the Worlds and the effect that it had on the mass psychology, one of the findings that they found in that book is that the strongest current of fear was amongst the Bible Belt. And it seems that whenever uh, UFO sightings happen or some kind of UFO incident occurs, um, we see this, this, just this, um, this explosion in the belief that, that 
somehow this is this is the watchers that we saw in the in the uh, book of Genesis come back the the the, uh, the angels that came down and made it with the daughters of men and the Nephilim were thus born and 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 so so we see you know actually uh, the, the, those strong current of we we see uh, the uh, the Bible Belt and people within that that uh, particular. Uh, community, uh, their fears being played upon. Yes. It strikes a response toward with them. That's not to say that those theories are entirely and completely, uh, uh, entirely and completely invalid. But it is to suggest, though, that to a certain extent, people, uh, when it when it involves the heavenlies, when it involves heavenly bodies, it strikes a response toward with them. And uh, they respond in their own particular ways, and that seems to be one of them. So, do you think that? Do you think that people actually, whether or not the UFO phenomena is real, let, let's say that it is real. Let's say that it's a given that something beyond human technology really is going on. As that aside, mm-hmm. you're kind of proposing that there's people engineering it and making more of it than it is, and that are eventually going to uh, just create the external threat. Mm-hmm. It's either going to be an external threat or it's going to be, it'll be one of two things with, with them. It'll either be an external threat, oh God, the aliens are eating us, or it will be uh, uh, a, a neo-Gnostic uh, religion, which will be uh, more so, uh, uh, oh God, the a- aliens are here to help save us. us. Yeah, to save us, to guide us along it, it our may path be, to it may, God. It may actually uh, end up being uh, being both, um, mm-hmm. uh, 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 depending on on you know uh, what the what the manipulators find to be the most advantageous at at that given point at t- right. in time. Uh, at one point in time, it might be more advantageous to present aliens as enemies. And then at another given point in time, it might be more advantageous to present them uh, in a messianic uh, uh, light. Uh, I guess what what we what we were saying through the article um, was that it's not so much important whether or not UFOs are real. The reality is not that is not as important as what a re- belief in UFOs. Uh, does and what and, and the the effect that the consequence uh, of a belief in UFOs what 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 um, that basic what the consequences are is is more important. Um, I follow that. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, then. I mean they're just manipulating existing belief regardless of right. what the um, say the say the aliens aren't friendly. Say they aren't here to eat us. Say they just remain behind the shadows and zip, and it's nothing more than lights in the skies. Well, You're they, saying eventually someone's going to just invent a lie or a story yeah, based well, on it, people's widespread belief in the phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and again, um, UFOs have a way of creating fear and trauma that is not unlike the fear and trauma that we see with terrorism. And so, again, we're back to the whole idea yeah. of, of tearing people down psychologically and rebuilding them into the new person that is supposed to uh, inhabit the, uh, the the new world order. Yeah. And, uh, and if, 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 if I may very quickly cite of, uh, some, of some examples here of, 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 of specific, a specific example of where 
you have the belief systems of these UFO, for instance, UFO cults and UFO religions synchronizing with the desired outcomes of the uh, of the power elite. Uh, the prime example would be the Raelians. The Raelians movement uh, openly, openly advocates uh, global government. It openly yeah. advocates a cashless society. Uh, it, it, it advocates what's known as a geniocracy, which is basically ruled by geniuses, which translates to technocracy, ruled by a cognitive elite. Um, uh, and also, uh, in, throughout uh, the tract uh, Intelligent Design, I think it's called, it's, it's one of the tracks by Rail, um, he, he basically says that all people are cells, and the cells are subordinate to a larger social organism. This echoes the, uh, the uh, physiological interpretation of the state and the organic theory of the state that came from Henri de Saint-Simon and August Comte and out of the technocratic social sciences. Um, well, do you think Braille, um read these books, or do you think he was presented with information from otherworldly entities? <laughs> God only knows. I, I okay. get the idea. I get the idea that he's basically recycling you know some the, something that came out of the technocratic heritage and just adding well, he is from france too in france you're right <laughs> france uh, i'm not i'm not trying to make a broad sweeping generalization but france was one of the places most heavily heavily hit by the enlightenment yeah they is, they were basically they were permanently damaged by the effects of the french revolution they've never gotten yeah. over and by the scientific anthropocentric uh, beliefs of the Enlightenment, and so it's not it's not beyond the realm of possibility that that's just his own cultural proclivities uh, being expressed uh, through the medium of ufology. You know that that right. that's one possibility. Um, We're down to like a minute here. Actually, I wanted to ask sure. you uh, uh, on livefromoswell.com. I have uh, a link to your book right now and a link to the article on MJ-12, uh, just in case people are more, are interested in figuring out more about the New World Order over the past two centuries and how it, it started. But they're listening to the uh, basically what's dubbed as the UFO program. Um, in a yes or no way, just because of time, does your book go into any extensive detail on UFOs and belief systems? Yes. Yes, it does. Yes, it okay. definitely does. And chapter, it is, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, great. <laughs> Well, it is linked from Live from Roswell. I want to thank both Paul and Philip Collins for joining us tonight on Live from Roswell uh, to discuss a very fascinating theory on uh, globalism and UFOs. And I'll remind you, next week we have, as my guest, will be Eric Cobine discussing modern-day dinosaurs, just sort of right out of the movies of the Loch Ness Monster movie that's out right now. Um, but he has reports from around the globe over the last uh, 100 years or so of animals thought to be extinct millions of years ago that haven't been paying attention to evolutionary theory. That'll be January 27th to talk about modern dinosaurs. And if you want to find out more about the future of where evolutionary theory could be taking us, check out uh, Paul and Philip Collins' book, The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, linked from LifeRoswell.com. Guys, it's been very interesting. Hey, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, man. thanks a lot. Definitely. And if anybody wants to contact you guys, they can uh, all... They can email me at live, talk to me at live from Roswell, and I'll forward it on since sure, I didn't have a absolutely. website link to you. But they do have several articles along these lines. If you don't want to buy their book, link from livefromroswell.com right now as well. 
Thanks for joining us once again, folks. God bless you. We'll talk to you next weekend, and congratulations to New York Giants fans. <laughs> I'm Guy Malone, signing off for Live from Roswell. I think we're out. <laughs>